We are returning to Mark's gospel this morning into what's known as the Olivet Discourse. It is the longest teaching by Jesus recorded in Mark, and it's also the longest teaching that Jesus gave about the end times anywhere in the gospels. It's a long chapter. So, normally I ask you to stand at this time in the service, right, as a way to demonstrate our uh, you know, reverence for God and his word. Um, continue to do that in your heart. <laughs> and it's a long chapter. I'm going to read the whole thing. So I'm not going to ask you to stand. Um, and next week I'm going to read the whole chapter again and I'm not going to ask you to stand then. So just know that we normally do that, but because of the length of the chapter, we're not going to do that. So I'm going to go ahead and read it. All of Mark chapter 13, hear the word of the Lord. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils. And you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light 
and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is the word of the Lord. So again, uh, we're looking at this chapter this morning, and we're going to look at it again next week. Uh, This week, we're going to try to just do our best to understand what's being said here, because Mark inserted a parenthetical thought as he wrote out what Jesus spoke. Mark said, let the reader understand. And so we need to make sure we're doing our best to understand what it is that Jesus is saying throughout this passage. Next week, we're going to read the chapter again, and we're going to ask the question, how do we then live this out? Because this is meant to be a very practical teaching from Jesus. It is not meant to fuel speculation about the end times. Unfortunately, we have plenty of examples of that happening throughout history, some of which are laughable. I remember uh, Harold Camping in May, in 2011, he said, May 2011, the world will end. And that didn't happen. And so he said, October 2011, the world will end. And then that didn't happen. And so Harold Camping said, it's time for me to retire. And he nailed that one, actually. He nailed that one. Unfortunately, we also have plenty of examples throughout history of tragic moments when people thought that the end was upon us. The the more recent, perhaps, example is that of the Heaven's Gate cult, in which the members of that cult committed mass suicide because they thought that the near approach of the Hale-Bopp comet signaled the end of all things. And then, of course, you know, the Left Behind series. The, the, the thoroughly unbiblical teaching that is woven throughout the Left Behind series has only added to confusion about the end times. But then, with the onset of a global pandemic, these questions about the end became intensely personal for many of us. Is this a sign of the end, that Jesus is about to return? This global pandemic, such as none of us in our lifetimes have ever seen, is this the beginning of the end? Leads to a sense of being shaken for many who wondered that same thing. In fact, that that same question has been raised throughout history, right? Our global pandemic is not the first global pandemic, 
There have been all kinds of terrible things that have happened throughout history, during which people have asked that same question, is this the end? Is the return of Christ imminent? Again, Jesus' teaching here is not meant to fuel speculation, the kind of speculation that's easy to, you know, engage in when things are just fine. It's meant to bring comfort when everything's being shaken. There's two questions I want you to be asking yourself over the next two weeks as we dive into this chapter. The first is this, how would my life change if I really believed that everything is passing away? That's what Jesus says in verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away. I want you to be asking yourself that question over you know, the rest of this sermon and next week. How would my life change? What would it look like if I really believe that everything is passing away? The second question I want you to wrestle with this week and next is, how would my life change if I really believed that an end is coming and only God knows when that will be? Because in verse 32, Jesus says, concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, as he was incarnate on earth, but only the Father. So let's start thinking about those two questions as we dive into this text. And this morning, we're going to consider three things from this text. First, that the world will be shaken. The world will be shaken. Second, the end is known only by God. And then third, that there are three things that are certain until the last day. First, the world will be shaken. Second, the end is known only by God. And third, there are three things that Jesus tells us are certain until the last day. But before we jump in, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning in this portion of your word, Lord Jesus, we're thankful for this teaching. We're thankful that you gave it to your disciples. We, we can't imagine what it must have been for them or what it would have been like for them if, if you had not given them this teaching because in just a matter of hours, you were on a cross. In just a matter of hours, it appeared that everything was lost. And yet you taught them here what things would be like until the day of your triumphant return. And then you rose to verify that all you had said was true. And here we are down to this day. We have this teaching, Lord, and we are so thankful for it. Where would we be? If we were left without this understanding that you provide for us of what to anticipate and what to be watching for until that great and glorious day, Lord Jesus, when you return. So would you, by your spirit, be our teacher this morning? Open up your word to us. Help us to take these things to heart. Not that we might fuel speculation amongst ourselves, how silly and misguided that is, but rather that we would be comforted and that our hope would be secure. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so first, the world will be shaken. The, the world of the disciples was about to be shaken. I read it in verses one and two. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. So you remember back in Mark chapter 12, they were in the court of women. There was a teaching that was going on from Jesus as people were putting their offerings into the uh, huge, massive shofar boxes in which people would drop their coins. And, and Jesus was making a contrast there between the, the, the poor widow who offered just her two little teeny coins and the wealthy who were dropping in their huge sums of gold and silver coins. And Jesus was saying, let me tell you who gave more. 
So that was there. Now they're making their way outside the temple. Jesus and his disciples are, are making their way out. And you can almost picture the disciples kind of looking back at the temple, maybe even putting their, their hand on the wall as they're walking along and saying to Jesus, look at this massive, marvelous structure. Look at this temple. The temple was way bigger than the temple that Solomon built in the Old Testament. This is the temple that was rebuilt by Herod the Great, and it was massive. Both archaeological digs and historical records indicate that the temple complex itself covered 35 acres. Now, this property, Grace, you know, church's property, 805 Blossom, is three and a half acres. Ten times that is the temple complex. The stones, the stones are, you know, suggested to be, and again, archaeological finds and historical records would indicate that these stones on average were 38 feet long, they were 12 feet high, and they were 18 feet wide. Now, from that edge of the stage, that, I brought a tape measure out here earlier this week. From that edge of the stage, that edge of the stage is 24 feet. They were longer than the stage. To the bottom of the cross there is 11 feet. So another foot up the cross, and 18 feet is whatever it is. I didn't do that, because you can't see the depth perception thing. You just got the idea, right? It's huge. These stones are massive. And Jesus says in verse two, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The disciples were in awe of this structure. And Jesus says, one day, soon, nothing will be left. Jesus is talking about something that would soon come to pass. It was around AD 30 when Jesus gave this teaching, the Olivet Discourse on the side of of Mount Olive. Beginning in AD 66, the upheaval that he is prophesying about in this passage began at the hands of Emperor Vespasian. The flight that Jesus refers to in verse 14, when you see the abomination of desolation, standing where he ought not to be, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. That flight happened in AD 67, and then the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, there was a massive fire, and then Titus, the son of Vespasian, ordered the temple to be leveled to the ground. It all unfolded just as Jesus said that it would. Their world, Jerusalem, the disciples, was about to be shaken. But Jesus' teaching indicates that the world will continue to be shaken until the day of his return. He is teaching that the entire age between his first coming And his second coming will be marked by shaking. Verses 7 and 8, he says, uh, And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Some of you know what it feels like when you go into labor. Right? The birth pains begin. They're maybe a little bit more spread out, not quite as intense, but over time, the intensity builds and the frequency builds. And what Jesus is saying to his disciples is in this time, it's beginning, but it will continue to build. The entire age before Jesus Christ returns will be marked by shaking. Everything people put their confidence in will be shaking. shaken. Heaven and earth, as Jesus said, 
in verse 31 is passing away. What happens when your world is shaken? What happens when you realize that the things that you've been putting your trust in are passing away? It, it can happen in an instant. It can happen with just a few words. Your job has been eliminated. I'm afraid there's been an accident. The cancer is inoperable. And you then find that things that you maybe explicitly or maybe just kind of, you know, implicitly put your hope in as things that wouldn't be shaken, you were looking to those things as unshakable, you find that they are in fact being shaken and are in fact passing away. How will you live when that happens? We'll get into that more next week. Jesus' teaching to his disciples, however, is that in the first century, guys, in the 40 years between now and the temple falling in AD 70, Jerusalem will be shaken. Your lives, your heritage will be shaken. And in this age between now and my return, the world will be shaken. Heaven and earth, as he says in verse 30, 31, are passing away. Second, the end is known only by God. The disciples ask a question, and you can, you can imagine, verse 3, and as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, so again, they've, they've left the temple, they, they make their way across the Kidron Valley over to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives, the slope that they were on, would have been to the east of the city of Jerusalem, and they would have had the temple in full view. You can imagine the disciples sitting there saying to themselves, he just said that whole thing is going to be leveled. And so four of the disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, kind of make their way over to Jesus, and they ask him a question, really two questions, right? When will this happen, and what will be the sign that it's about to take place? And Jesus doesn't answer the first question, except to say, by the time we get to the end of the passage, in verse 32, no one knows. Concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. But then he does devote the entire speech. What we have is Mark 13 to answering the second question. What will be the sign? How can we know? Jesus felt it was important that he do that because in the disciples' thinking, the destruction of the temple and the end of the age would be happening at the same time. And Jesus wants to make sure that they understand that there's going to be an you know, indeterminable gap between the two. So Jesus zooms back and forth between that which is imminent in AD 70 and that which will come at the end. All throughout this passage, you see him zooming back and forth. So again, we, we've shown how AD 70 was clearly in view, but we've also hinted at the fact that he says that there are things that will characterize the age until his return. Tumult, war, natural disaster, like we saw in verses 7 and 8. In verse 10, he says this gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. That's what's characterizing the age in which we live now. In fact, Matthew has recorded something that Mark doesn't have recorded. Matthew has Jesus saying there, and then the end will come. This gospel must be, be first, be, first, first be preached to all the nations, and then the end will come. 
You have false Christs and false teachers in verse 22 that will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. The rest of the New Testament, especially 2 Peter and 1 John, indicate that that is continuing to happen. 2 Thessalonians chapter 4 as well indicate that this is still going on to this very day. And then you get to verses 24 through 27 in which Jesus talks very clearly about the day of his return. The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. What is he doing? Jesus is teaching about the end in order to help his disciples make sense of what's imminent. You know how a camera works, right? You, you zoom in on something far away, and that which is up close gets a little fuzzy. The opposite is happening with Jesus' teaching. When Jesus zooms in on that which is far away, the end of the age, what's closer actually becomes clearer. That's what Jesus is doing in this passage. He's teaching about the end in order to help them make sense of what's imminent. Now, I can't avoid talking about one of the hard passages. Verse 30. What in the world do we do with verse 30? Let me read it for us again. Jesus says in verse 30, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And the, the question, of course, is what do we do with that phrase, all these things? Because right before that, he talks about stars falling from heaven and seeing the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. So what do we do with verse 30? First question, is Jesus referring to the generation alive at that time? Is he referring exclusively to that generation alive at that time concerning everything that he said prior to verse 30? If that's the case, then what that means is that Jesus assumed and was teaching that he was going to return when the temple was destroyed in AD 70, and if that's the case, he clearly got it wrong. But if he's not talking about the generation alive at that time, then what generation is he talking about? One commentator you know, listed out all the possibilities that have been brought forward by theologians throughout the ages, and then at the end of that long list, he has a sentence that reads like this, none of these are satisfactory. Great. There are a couple uh, theologians whose observations I find helpful, and also a couple pastors whose observations I find helpful. So let me just hit those real quick. First of all, uh, William Lane. William Lane is one of the commentators, a theologian that I have looked to on uh, understanding Mark as we've made our way through this whole uh, study over the last year and a half. And William Lane says this, Jesus is not doing less than answering the question that the disciples asked. Their question back in verse 4 was, when will these things be? Jesus just said the temple's going to fall. Not one stone is going to be left on top of the other. They asked the question, when will these things be? Jesus doesn't do less than answer that question. He does more than answer that question. He gives them additional information, again, to help them make sense of what was about to happen. But the all these things that they asked about in verse 4, Jesus gives and all, things, all these things answer in verse 30. In other words, they asked the question, when is the temple going to fall? And Jesus answered their question by saying, before this generation has passed away. D.A. Carson, another theologian, says concerning Jesus' statement in verse 30, 
that doesn't require that everything that precedes verse 30 has been brought to completion. His statement only requires that those things have begun. So again, helpful, but not entirely satisfactory. Here's where the two pastors come in. Because pastors always make things so much clearer, don't they? I was expecting an amen. (laughs) Pastor number one, Dick Lucas. Dick Lucas, an Anglican pastor in England, um, said this. You know, it would be strange if the greatest teacher who ever lived didn't make sure that what the main thing he wanted to say wasn't clearly perceived. Like, surely Jesus would have made sure that the main thing was the plain thing. Which leads to Alistair Begg, a Baptist pastor whose Scottish accent is the envy of every non-Scottish preacher, who said, and I I wish I could, I wish I could, if you've heard him, you got his voice in your head right now. The main thing is the plain thing, and the plain thing is the main thing. So what is the plain thing? And the plain thing is right there in verse 32. Concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Again, so what's Jesus' point? He wants to help his disciples prepare for what's imminent, not provide them with certainty with respect to timing. Jesus teaches about the end in order to provide clarity about what's imminent. Now, again, we've got to put ourselves in their shoes for a second. They're being told their world is about to be shaken. If you have not yet come to the point in your life where you're asking the question, when is the end going to come? Perhaps it is because we have lived very comfortable, very privileged very safe lives. And we've never been brought to the point, I put myself entirely in this camp, never been brought to the point where our world is being shaken, the things that we've put our hope in are being seen to be passing away, such that we ask the question, is this the end? And if not, when? When will it be? When will it all end? When, Lord Jesus, will you return? And if that's not where we are, then, you know, maybe it's because we've lived a comfortable life. Maybe it's because we're putting our hope in things that are passing away. And one day, those, two, those things too will be shaken. So the world is being shaken. The end is known only by God. And then third, Jesus teaches there are three things that will remain true until the day of his return. I'm going to hit them real quick because next week is going to be about unpacking these things even more. So just high-level overview. First of all, Christians will be treated with hostility. Christians will be treated with hostility. Verses 9 through 13, be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial, he's talking about things that were going to happen to the disciples before AD 70, and that continue to happen to Christians down to this very day. Go and read Revelation. It's like John in Revelation Hearing from Jesus, revealing himself and teaching him in Revelation, it's like Jesus is taking Mark chapter 13 and just blowing it up in the book of Revelation, 
so that Christians to this very day can understand we should expect persecution. Peter was listening to Jesus. He asked this question. He was one of the four that asked this question. He was listening to Jesus. Go and read First and Second Peter. Peter is saying the exact same thing. As Christians, we should expect to be persecuted. In First Peter 4, 17, Peter says it's time now for judgment to begin with the household of God. This judgment that is coming, this judgment that was previewed with the judgment on Jerusalem and the fall of the temple in AD 70, is beginning even now in the purification of the church. How does God do that? By bringing hostility through those who oppose Christians. Christians will be treated with hostility, verses 9 through 13. Satan will be relentless in his attempt to deceive. This is the other thing that Jesus is teaching very clearly will characterize the age until he returns. So in verses 5 and 6, Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And then jump over to verse 21. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Behind every false teacher, behind every false Christ who would say, I'm Jesus, is an enemy who is the father of lies, who seeks to deceive. Jesus says would seek to deceive even the elect even his people, if he could. Christians will be treated with hostility. Satan will be relentless in his attempt to deceive. But then third, Christ is sovereign over all. Jesus reigns. He tells us in this passage that his word is eternal. Verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. It speaks to his sovereignty. His words will not fail. His world will be reached. Again, going back to verse 10, this gospel must be preached to all the nations. Verses 33 to 36, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. And then he goes on to talk about the fact that this generation will not pass away. Ultimately, the generation also who was alive until that day in which he, until that day in which he returns and comes. And then finally, his people will be kept to the end. His people will be kept until the end. These are the truths that are unpacked throughout the rest of the New Testament. In 2019, when we covered First and Second Peter, we were seeing these very things being unpacked and taught to us. I, maybe one day I'll preach through Revelation. I'm not going to make any promises. But man, is it an awesome book. And the whole point of Revelation is to comfort God's people in the face of hardship. All the New Testament ultimately comes back to, at the end of the day, helping Christians rest in God's sovereignty as they face trials waiting for the day of Jesus' return. That's what Jesus is teaching here in a nutshell. Next week, we take a look at how to apply it in our lives. When Mark says in this passage, let the reader understand, his burden is not to fuel speculation. It is to bring comfort to God's people. We must understand that though persecution must come and Satan will do his best to deceive, God's people will be kept until the day of his return. Jesus has given his word and his word will not fail. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that you are eternal. Lord, just as we marveled at the beginning and, and asked ourselves, what would it be like if Mark chapter 13 weren't in our Bibles? So too with Mark chapter 16 and the resurrection. We are thankful, O God, that you sent your son to die in our place. We are thankful, Lord Jesus, that you now rule and reign over all things. Holy Spirit, we thank you for giving us new life in the gospel, giving us faith to believe and hope that is grounded in that which will not pass, the very word of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.